0: Welcome to Oh God, What Now? I'm Jacob Jarvis hosting what I regret to say is my last show because we're doing a straight swap deal with Fox News, me for Tucker Carlson. Financially, I couldn't say no. Come back next week for our rebranded offering, What the Tuck is Going On? But on today's show, Boris Johnson is getting his place in the history books. A juicy new read by legend of political analysis Anthony Seldon details Boris Johnson's chaotic time in number 10. But should we be wary to treat him as a relic of the past just yet? And after Rob lost three jobs for the price of one, we discussed the new boys in town, and predictably, they are in fact boys. And in the extra bit for Patreon backers, council culture. Metal detectorists face fines if they try to scour for treasure in Cleeforps, is nothing beyond a legislative crackdown. Now, let's meet our panel. Naomi Smith is CEO of Best for Britain. Hi, Naomi. Hello. Naomi, Jacob Rees-Mogg was taken to task by Marina Perkis on his GB News show earlier this week. Should we be looking out for Smith versus Farage as the channel's next blockbuster
1: <laughs> bout? <laughs> oh, didn't Marina do it well? Um, absolutely brilliant, brilliant, brilliant performance by her. Um, and she absolutely murdered Rees-Mogg. And you do have this thing of, you know, does appearing legitimise these shows? That That is a question. And, and it's one she grappled with herself before going on to do it. I think by changing the terms of the debate completely and brilliantly, she didn't legitimize them. She helped show the absurdity of people like him and that channel.
0: Yeah, certainly. I mean, I think it's kind of, you can't boost someone's credibility if there's nothing to boost. (laughs) You can't just fill a credibility vacuum, really, can you?
1: Uh, and, And of course, she said, I'll never be back on. You know, she was very, very clear in saying, I'm here with a clear message. All culture wars are a massive distraction from the stuff that is really impacting everybody's life. And you know what? It's the fault of people like you, your party and your government. And she pulled it off. Bravo, bravo, Marina.
0: Seth Tevo is a journalist and author of Behind Closed Doors, the secret life of London's private members clubs. In a twist not quite worthy of M. Night Shyamalan, Civil Service Chief Simon Case is reportedly trying to delay Sue Gray from becoming
2: Starmer's Chief of Staff. How big a problem is that for the Labour leader? I think it's bigger than was expected, because I don't think the Labour leader's office realised how much this would backfire when they thought, oh, we've scored a real coup, we've got Sue Gray, former head of ethics, to uh, come and work for us. Um, Part of the problem is just how sensitive her job was. Remember that before that, she was also head of propriety and ethics, and her job involved reading the secret forms that every minister files extensively laying out all of their personal arrangements, business arrangements she knows where all the bodies are buried the problem I suppose Simon Case has however is that ACOBA, the body that's meant to be overseeing all of this, they're pretty toothless. (laughs) And um, the extent of their powers in the case of an outright breach is that they can write a letter saying, that's really not on. (laughs) Um, If you want a bit of proof of this, I mean, there there is a blanket ban on all former senior civil servants and politicians of three months. They can't take any second jobs after leaving. Boris Johnson was out doing speaker tour thing less than a month after he left office. There are no consequences for that whatsoever. Mm. Um, and it's just one very prominent example of many, many cases where people have just blindly either failed to consult ACOBA or just ignored what ACOBA has asked them to do. Um, and even the most that they could ask on a voluntary basis is a two year ban. Well, that will be awfully inconvenient from the Labour Party's point of view, but not fatal um, and not insurmountable.
0: Yeah, this was the it felt to me like the most exciting, really boring appointment that could possibly be made in that position. So do you think Keir Starmer will likely just double down on throwing caution to the wind and going for the most experienced person he could and then going, yeah, I'm going to stick with this quite boring choice which shouldn't have
2: caused an uproar in the first place? These are the kinds of jobs where you can make up as you go along the terms of reference and what people do. So there will be a solution and she will start her job in some form at some point.
0: Returning to the show is comedian Matt Green, uh, fresh from an unblinking performance as an unnamed minister accused of bullying. Hello, Matt. Hi, how's it going? I'm good, how are you? I'm very well, thanks, yeah. Good. Joe Biden has formally announced he's running for president in 2024. Will your political
3: characters take a trip across the Atlantic next year? (laughs) Good question. Um, I think probably not uh, many times, partly because my American accent is not quite strong enough to deal with (laughs) all the different characters I'd have to do. Uh, And also my problem is that apart from Mark Zuckerberg, there are very few American people in public life that I look anything like and I do get told I look like Zuckerberg quite a lot on YouTube Um, I have played him a couple of times in videos uh, sort of as a robot character Um, so, uh, so maybe I'll do a couple of those but for me I think part of it is also that I find whenever I'm feeling sort of stressed about british politics whenever i've listened to too many podcasts where i get worried about it i just listen to a couple of american political podcasts and that always cheers me up because i always think it doesn't matter how bad things are here they always manage to one-up us
1: have you got a favorite matt have you got a favorite american politics show
3: um i mean i'm I'm a big fan i like um uh, pod save america and that side those sorts of guys there's a few of those ones um and um i just i think whenever i hear anyone talking about like you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene or... I mean, we've got culture war stuff over here, but, you know, they don't—they have people literally machine gunning yeah. Bud Light in supermarkets yeah. because once a trans person touched a can or something, it's so extraordinary the levels to which they've got to over there. So it almost makes me feel better that, you know, we're, we're a few years behind,
0: yeah. Yeah, I spoke to a journalist in Georgia about Marjorie Taylor Greene today, and it was quite interesting. I was doing it for a Bunk USA and she seems really interesting, and I was speaking to him and going, yeah, what's, what's behind it? What's her motivation? And it was basically, she's a fucking idiot, <laughs> yeah. and she's a horrible person, and that's about it. I think that's probably a fair assessment. Yeah. <laughs> Before we move on, a few reminders. If you're listening as a Patreon backer, don't forget, tonight at 7pm, you can tune in to Podcaster's Question Time, our exclusive live Zoom where Roz Taylor will answer your questions. Question one from me. How can we get you to love both dogs and space, Ros? If you're listening on Friday, you've missed out, but there'll be another chance to quiz one of our panel next month. Search Oh God What Now, podcast Patreon, or follow the link in the show notes for info on how to sign up. And in a month's time, we'll be back in the flesh at Leicester Square Theatre. On Wednesday, May 24th, join Roz, Alexandreou, Arthur Snell and Marie. It's her first live show for us, so be nice. Go to leicestersquaretheatre.com to book your spot. Patreon backers, there's also a discount too. Boris Johnson once noted, I've got more in common with a free-toed sloth than I have with Winston Churchill. The more you read about him, the more completely amazed you are about what he did, his energy, his literary fecundity, his ability to work, just unbelievable energy. Johnson himself is now a subject for the history books, And the more you read about him, the more completely amazed you are about what he did, his ability to skive, and his just unbelievable shamelessness. But is the scrutiny too late? And will this all bolster his already astonishing ego? Naomi, Anthony Seldon's new book is providing this latest instalment in the Johnson saga. And I must start by saying we are going off what is in the book here, not stating all of this as gospel. Uh, Lawyers, there you go. Uh, The book details this admission from Johnson. Oh shit, we've got no plan. We haven't thought about it. I didn't think it would happen. Holy crap, what will we do? That was his reaction to Brexit, what he purportedly really wanted to happen, happening. Naomi, is it depressing to see his haplessness so starkly but so late?
1: I'm very glad that you confirmed that this was to do with Brexit. Because when I read the quote, Oh shit, we've got no plan. We haven't thought about it. I didn't think it would happen. Holy crap, what will we do? Generally, didn't know, is he talking about COVID, yeah. governing the country in general, <laughs> Brexit? So, so thank, thank you for the clarification. <laughs> it, could have, it could have literally applied to, to any of those and more. And look, he he famously never wanted Leave to win. He was just using it as a political vehicle. And of course, it's depressing. Of course it is. But I don't think anyone was under any illusion that Johnson had a plan that he was a man that would do detail, that would think about the consequences of his actions. The ambiguity over the number of children uh, he has, as listed on his Wikipedia page, is uh, a case in yeah. point. <laughs> um, and he is notoriously Question lazy. Mark. He is notoriously self-interested. So uh, depressed, I mean, yes. Surprised, definitely not.
0: What have you found the most frustrating of the things that have come out lately?
1: You Yeah, know, the, the most frustrating is... The people that have been hurt by his decisions on um, Brexit, uh, the families that have suffered as a consequence of that, the businesses that are on their knees because of the extra red tape and increased costs and lost trading opportunities, but mostly COVID handling because of, of just how life or death that was for so many people. But there are also millions of people poorer. There are thousands of people dead. You know, lives have been destroyed and more pain is on the way for them. And yet he and his party are still treated seriously. And that's, that's the frustration, that they still call themselves patriots with a straight face. They still try to tell us that they are the only people who can be trusted with the economy. They're not stupid. They know what they've done. They just don't care and they don't have shame and they don't have contrition.
0: Does it jar with you as kind of treating him like a historical figure in a way here? I got a lot of shit last week for using the phrase Long Johnson, so I will not use that again. Mm. (laughs) But we are very much living in a world which has been warped by him and the the negatives we're going through are consequences caused by him. Does it jar with you that feeling of treating him like he is just a character in the history books now?
1: We saw a very half assed attempt at uh, challenging Sunak after Truss went um and you know obviously came to nothing Sunak himself has had a few wins um notably on his effort to clean up Johnson's northern ireland protocol that means that some of Johnson's supporters are now quieter um and diehards like mog and doris have one foot out the door and in their own sort of future broadcasting media careers but are probably waiting for their moment and i think that moment might be in a couple of weeks' time after the local elections, if the Conservatives do as poorly as predicted, I think we all need to brace ourselves for those voices saying, say what you like about Johnson, but he knew how to win elections. He himself is omnipresent and still trying to behave like the statesman that he never really was around the world on behalf of an increasingly embarrassed Britain. And the consequences of his actions we're all still living with all the time. So... Um, not sufficiently consigned to the history books in any form yet.
0: A rally from Mog and Doris would be such a shame in a twofold manner because they're such talented podcasters. <laughs> I don't know what we'd do without them, without them on our screens providing us entertainment and getting exclusives <laughs> such as exclusive
2: about herself, which Nadine Doris seems to do every so often. Noam is right about Johnson maybe consigned to the history books, but Johnsonism isn't. Um, and if you want a sign of this, um, there's this National Conservatism Conference that's been okay. scheduled, as it's called. Like kid like you not? The BBC Pack. The speaker lineup is all the old favorites. Suela Braverman, Michael Gove, Douglas Murray, Daniel Hannan, um, people like Darren Grimes and Matt Goodwin. You know, it, it's interestingly scheduled for just after the council elections okay. as well.
0: Yeah, well I mean I'll I'll have to go because then I'll be able to bet against anything Daniel Hannan says because he's never said anything correct in his entire in his entire life, it wouldn't feel like to me. Uh Seth, as a historian, putting on your historian hat, which I'm sure you always have on, actually, how do you think we're collectively handling the documentation of
2: Johnson's downfall? It's
1: usually a fez, by the way.
2: A Fez. <laughs> it is, it is. Affairs of the heart as as I heard it called. Um, One of the problems, actually, for modern historians is that it used to be the case that you had trouble finding source material. You'd be raking over the same thing, reinterpreting it. We have too much. I mean, we have the entire metadata of the government email accounts to sift through in years to come. Uh, It is almost impossible. And so what that creates as a challenge now is that modern uh, political accounts, you have to decide which narrative you prefer. And you, there's a lot of scope for bullshit artists. There's a lot of scope for fawning biographies of Boris Johnson. There's one chap who's written, I forget what his name is, but he's on to his fourth volume about how wonderful a prime minister Johnson is and how the <laughs> sun shines out of every part of him. Um, but... Most of the stuff that we've actually been looking at here from these stories from the Selden book, they're actually pretty much things that we already knew yeah. or we'd had a version of it uh, that had come out before. You know, the idea that Number 10 Downing Street was chaotic under Boris Johnson, we already yeah. knew that. Um, the idea that Cummings was working around him, well, we already knew that. The idea that his marriage was basically a war zone before they even got married, well, we already knew that as well. Yeah. Um, it's details. It's for funny sort of revealing stories that confirm what we already long suspected
0: is that why get we get these narratives which are sort of competing with each other so for example in with january 6th mm. is an example of this with tucker carlson when he produced all this new material and said this shows a different story to what happened and it went well yeah it shows a different things were happening but that doesn't mean the other things did not also simultaneously happen is it why we create this kind of
2: combative form of history totally um, and that's a really good example they had several thousand hours of raw footage from all the cctv yeah. and all the points you can put together a, 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 an edit which shows that nothing happened that day yeah. and everything was peace and quiet when a subject is
0: alive is it hard to sort of pick them apart and rake over everything they did without
2: naturally bolstering their presence as it were? Uh, not so much. Um, it used to be the worry, I think, that uh, you'd get sued if you said anything too colourful <laughs> or interesting. Uh, several changes to that. One is actually the uh, 2013 defamation legislation, which has made it a lot harder to sue people uh, if you, they are saying something which is true and is provable. But it's, it's also, I think, that uh, you know, the, the most obvious case in point of something like that, will say, with John Major. John Major sued a newspaper which ran a completely untrue story that alleged that he'd had an extramarital affair with a cleaner in Downing Street. Of course, we later found out he had an extramarital affair with his whip, Edwina Curry. So um, it was an interesting choice of lawsuit, but he did have grounds to sue for something like that. Um, What I'm getting at is that with someone like Johnson, I'm not sure he has a reputation to defend to begin with. You would actually need to um, prove to a libel court that this is somebody whose reputation is so spotless that it somehow damages their esteem in the public domain. And and I don't think that's going to happen.
0: On lines from the book, which have been quite Bizarre. The the I am the Fuhrer line is pretty shocking to me. Does that show the sort of weird mindset of Johnson, you know, how much he admires Churchill, but then
2: apparently he's spouting off nonsense like this. Oh, absolutely. But we knew this um, a year ago, Dominic Cummings was going around saying, uh, I'm the effing Fuhrer around here. I mean, this was barely noticed at the time, but uh, it's very consistent. And if you read Boris Johnson's columns, one of the reasons why it's really easy to understand Johnson's mindset is he's probably put down more column inches than any other Prime Minister of our lifetimes. Um, and there was this weird obsession, you know, through all the straight bananas stuff in Brussels, with likening things to the Third Reich, bringing in the yeah. Third Reich through everything. I think part of that is also that um, Johnson likes to cultivate the image of a very learned man because he learned some Cod Latin and some Cod Ancient Greek at school. But um, beyond that, I'm not sure he's actually very good on history since then. Yeah. And most of the history he knows is, you know, uh, we were the good guys in World War II and ooh, isn't this fascinating. And yes, there is this strange obsession with the far right that crops up from time to time
0: do we take this more seriously because we have a kind of hierarchy of media here and is it kind of as boris johnson he's contributed to this diminishing of the media and respect for the media and because he wrote loads of bullshit and he fed them loads of bullshit and so it actually takes to a book it's not necessarily that the information isn't there till it's in the book but it takes a book because then people go well this is a book so we can take this really seriously. Random news reports all over the place and just spouting off on Twitter, we don't take so seriously anymore because so much of it has been proven to be false, Or from people like Dominic Cummings, who clearly, he hates Boris Johnson, so why am I going to take it seriously, what he says about him?
2: I'm not sure. I think that uh, the reason this is being noticed is there are lots of news reports about the book. I'm not sure that many people will have read the book. Um, Selton writes these very good, very detailed histories of prime ministers, but When he was looking at someone like Theresa May, who's quite dull, there isn't this level of lunacy
0: to cover. Matt, Selden's extracts give Matt Hancock even more of a kicking than he's already had. Uh, The book claims that Cummings started calling him that, I'm going to say, C-bomb there, and eventually Johnson joined in. Is it quite
3: depressing having this kind of schoolboy teasing government? Yeah, I loved that um description of him. And also, my favorite thing is that the c bomb as you put it is used a lot throughout a lot of these um yeah. extracts. But also, the quote that you mentioned earlier with Naomi where he said holy crap. Um that was also um sort of censored in a lot of the headlines <laughs> as as c asterisk asterisk asterisk. So it did look like he was saying something significantly yeah, rude. yeah, yeah. Um, which um, which would have worked it would have been absolutely fair enough for, for what happened after Brexit. Um, yeah, I found uh, my favourite line in this about on this subject is the fact that apparently there are regional TV interviews where Johnson said um, that Hancock, he just called him that C word. And then because they were recorded, they were able to edit that out. And I just thought, release the tapes, <laughs> release the tapes. We need yeah. this, you know. He's not the prime minister anymore, but come on, let's. Re- it reminded me of the fact that in the 2016 election in America, that there was all this, uh, all these stories that Trump had said awful things during the Apprentice recordings. Yeah, but they were all edited out. And Mark Burnett, who was a fan of Trump and a supporter of his, who was the producer of the Apprentice, said, "Oh, I can't release the tapes for yeah, some yeah, sort yeah. of legal reasons or whatever." Um, and that would have probably, you know, wouldn't have helped his campaign if he'd mm. been seen to be swearing and yeah. and all this kind of stuff. So it did make me think, yeah, we need to kind of um, we need to see Boris in that way, because he's always seen as a sort of lovable, cuddly version of himself in yeah. public. But I think if people saw what he was like in private, mm-hmm. they might see the edge more. They might see the nastiness yeah. more. And I think that's what I, I think we need to see. Yeah, that's quite interesting. that You say it's kind
4: of
0: in uh, in regional uh interviews where he apparently said, it, I saw something that he apparently said that word a lot around Cummings and Lee Kane, because he saw them as sort of brash and working class. But what I found really interesting there was that as someone who grew up relatively working class, the idea of saying that word in Downing Street I would never say it. I would not ever possibly feasibly feel comfortable enough in a place like that to use that variety of language. So it's like this bizarre misunderstanding of the class system as well because i suppose he's if you're at the top of it you're fairly far removed from having to know how it works in a way sounds well.
3: like he's been watching too many guy Ritchie films basically <laughs> and thinks that that is that word you know is is what is used consistently throughout all of um working class culture yeah but also i think there's a part of me that thinks that there's something more honest about it if we would actually see them speaking like they do in private, in public. Because I think part of the problem sometimes with politicians in this country is there's this sort of coded language. There's all the sort of honourable gentleman and right honourable lady and all this kind of stuff, which makes you feel like it is coded. It's it's meant to make people who don't quite understand that feel distanced from it. And I'd much rather see Rishi Sunak stand up in the house of commons you know at prime minister's questions and say look this prick is being a right pain in the ass oh, yeah. and, and that would and that would make you feel like okay they yeah. are being honest at least they're, they're actually saying what they they think and of course that was part of why people like trump have been successful because they did just say what they thought and they were authentic and i feel like it although i don't like that that kind of language being used if it is being used behind the scenes let's use it in public yeah. too i'd much rather amuse that than sir softy Exactly, exactly. to be honest.
2: Exactly. It's something you also see in the US after the Watergate tapes came out in 74, because the idea that the president would record everything and you'd hear just how many swear words sentence after sentence were routinely <laughs> yeah. used by the most powerful man on earth. And it took a lot of getting used to, um, but it also so created a bit of a backlash. Uh, you know, the idea under Gerald Ford and Jimmy Carter that we're going to be a bit more puritanical and a bit more well-mannered yeah. to bring some dignity back. Of course. What people didn't, I think, appreciate at the time was LBJ, the president before Nixon, was even more foul-mouthed than uh, some of the tapes
0: do capture that. As we're mentioning America there, I mean, something that's emerged is kind of the affiliation that Boris Johnson had with Donald Trump and Donald Trump apparently seeing him like a mini-me. But something that sort of came out to me there was it seemed that people boris johnson is quick to dismiss are people that he thinks are not very clever whereas then people like bannon and miller and dominic cummings even who are all equally horrible in their own ways he will admire purely for for cleverness is that quite revealing of his psychology that he admires cleverness over kindness or being a good person in some way well
3: that's absolutely par for the course with that kind of person from that kind of background i think i think there's I think often people like Johnson could be described as a stupid person's idea of a clever person, and I think he has the same uh, with other people, perhaps that he has this. Th- th- there's a very sort of Oxbridgey debating society, Union, Oxford Union type idea of someone who's clever and able to be quick-witted and yeah. is always playing devil's advocate in every argument, whether or not they believe it or not. And I think. that that sort of cleverness is very surface and there's a total lack of emotional intelligence uh, which is something that I think you see we we saw Dominic Raab this week I heard someone describing that being a problem with him that he might be very intellectually clever but doesn't have any emotional intelligence and therefore can't understand why he's having an effect on people and I think Johnson's an absolutely brilliant example of that
0: yeah i mean it's it's one thing being able to recite from heart the words of philosophers but if you don't actually take them in and embody them in any way what is the fucking point really i would say that
3: i have to say there's one thing that i haven't seen anyone pick up on from these articles which i really enjoy these extracts rather which i really enjoyed which is apparently when johnson was isolating with covid he couldn't use the ipads properly On his zoom call so he kept disconnecting (laughs) from the zoom call and so they ended up setting up a series of different ipads that were all connected to zoom and every time he broke one of them he would just move on to the next (laughs) ipad which i think is an incredible image and it sort of sums up how he treats his ministers his wives (laughs) like just move on to the next one one's broken move on to the next one it
1: just makes me think of that um image of uh, if you give enough uh, chimpanzees enough typewriters eventually they'll write the works of Shakespeare
3: (laughs) but as someone who spends my life looking for sort of things to satirize about um, things that are happening and I just think if I if that if I'd made that up people would have said that's too much. The idea that he has seven iPads all around him (laughs) because he keeps moving to a different one. Yeah, like a sort
0: of weird Star Trek base, but for someone who's actually completely inept is quite ridiculous there, isn't it? Selden focuses on this battle between Cummings and Carrie Simmons for the control of Johnson. Is it embarrassing that a a man who was Prime Minister and, above all, a, a grown man is being sort of put forward and described as a bit of a political meat puppet?
3: I think I found it very funny the idea that Boris would occasionally blame her upstairs for the yeah. problems. So, so like, oh, I would do it, but her upstairs, like, like the whole of Downing Street was part of some sort of 1970s domestic sitcom, <laughs> and it made me think that we ha- we've had you know the James Graham This Is England very sort of prestige drama. I think we should have had a Marks and Grand Studio sitcom about it, like a Gold Two. Yeah, it would have been great. That's what we needed. You know, ten Downing Street, the the, the sitcom years. Finally, on the sort of substance of this, though,
0: does Johnson have any substantial hurdles left to face in Parliament following that committee mauling we saw recently?
1: Uh, Yes, many, actually. Um, So listeners may already be aware of this, but taking them in order, um, the Privileges Committee ruling has not yet come out. It is unclear when it will. Uh, Reports are that they've been avalanched by evidence, Uh, in much the same way as he was ambushed by Cake. Um, So who knows, it may take them quite a bit longer to reach a conclusion. If they find that he did indeed mislead Parliament, they can then recommend a period of suspension. If that period is 10 sitting days or longer and Parliament votes to approve it, Sunak said it would be a free vote. He, he wouldn't uh, whip it, but it would still be a tall order. Then Johnson would be vulnerable to something called a recall petition. And that means that if 10% of the electorate in Uxbridge and South Reislip sign that recall petition, there would then be a by-election. And current polls suggest Johnson may well not win that one. So lots of hurdles um, that you know, m- may well not happen, and if it does, uh, rumours persist that he is trying to go for a safer seat anyway, despite his pledge to stand again in Uxbridge. So, as is always the case with Johnson, one never really knows what he intends to do or where his uh, interest really lies. But um, uh, the the saga of him is not yet concluded.
0: As I mentioned, there's a new series of our geopolitics podcast, Doomsday Watch, out now. And this is a departure for the show. It's telling the story of the Ukraine war from its deep roots to the present day and maybe to a victory for Ukraine. Presenter Arthur Snell is in Kyiv right now and recently beamed in to speak to my esteemed colleague, Andrew Harrison.
5: Hello, Arthur. You're on the ground in Kyiv. Without giving too much away, what are you doing there? Who are you meeting? What's happening? So
4: I'm just here for a short visit with a group of... Um, mixture of sort of politicians and former officials from across Europe. Uh, we're meeting various uh, Ukrainian politicians and other, other sort of important people here. It's um, very relevant to the fact that Doomsday Watch is coming out, but it's also relevant to some other projects I'm involved in uh, in support of Ukraine.
5: What's the atmosphere like? How, how are Ukrainians feeling about the direction of the war at the moment? Yeah, it's
4: so we just came from a meeting with with uh, one of the ministers. Um, of course, there is a lot of gearing up for the counteroffensive. I, I think, I think there's still a few weeks to go before that begins. I think there was some expectation that kind of it had already started, but I, I don't think that's the case. It's probably still about a a month away. And there is a mixture of determination and a bit of frustration. It must be said this this feeling that they need, particularly in terms of munitions from Europe. You know, Europe Europe's Manufacturing capability to be able to supply Ukraine with the munitions to be able to fight a war is being stretched, and and whilst they're very grateful, of course, for for what what has come already, they know that they need more, and and there's a there's a real focus on this being the crucial year. It may not be the last chance, but it's definitely the crucial year.
5: Are they frustrated with the political will as well? Because we, we hear, a um, you know, I never know who to trust because you read things saying political will in Europe is fragmented. Uh, you know, there isn't the will to see this suit to the end that you will start to see, um, you know, premature pushes for negotiation from certain quarters in the European Union.
4: Yeah, well, I think, interestingly, the, the big, um, the sort of immediate hurdle is the NATO summit. So that happens in July in Vilnius. Um, and it's very important that we don't just get a repeat of what was said last time, i.e. Ukraine will become a member. Well, will become, you know, of course, you might become a member 100 years from now. That's no good. The Ukrainians don't expect that they're going to be told you are now joining NATO next week, but they need something firmer. And interestingly, it's actually not really the Europeans who are holding back on that. I don't think the Americans are ready to go firm on Ukraine's status in NATO. So this will become framing continues. And I think that on the political side is where they feel that something needs to change. They need to have some some level of commitment from NATO members, which goes beyond the current uh, situation. But, you know, they're realistic. They're they're not saying that they they expect to be told that you're now joining like
5: Finland, you know,
4: in, in a short term, but they need something firmer than what they've currently got.
5: I'm not going to ask you exactly where you are because obviously the whereabouts of Agent Snell are a very uh, closely guarded, uh, oh God, what now, secret. But what's what's morale like there? I mean, can you can you get out for a drink and a you know some borscht and some very and things like that?
4: Yeah, I mean, it's a strange, it's a very strange environment, which is you know one half you're you're just driving through a normal. Uh, Eastern European city, you know, with some beautiful historic buildings and a few more tatty buildings from that kind of Soviet era. And then the other half, you know, full well, you're in a war zone. There are tank traps, there are big piles of sandbags, there's a lot of military everywhere, you know, inside government buildings, all the windows are blocked with sandbags, and and very few lights are on, and it feels quite eerie. So it's that strange contrast. But, you know, bits of the city look normal. and, And there are people going about their everyday business and it must be said that kiev i'm touching wood as i say this kiev has not had an air raid for about a month uh, so they are probably do another one but you know the, the obviously the most of most of the action is is happening a long way from here
5: the new series of doomsday watch is out now and it's been in the works for a long time i've got to say I, it is absolutely fantastic listening what's the plan for the series describe it for the listeners
4: yeah, so for those who uh, know what I'm talking about when I say it's like The World at War, uh, that was a seminal TV series that took a history of World War II. Uh, I think it was on ITV sort of back in the 80s. But for those who don't know it, you can find it on YouTube. But it's we're, we're trying to take a really kind of serious attempt at writing what is an early draft of the history of this war. Of course, it's a war that's still going on. And I think the, the tone and the approach is is... I hope, appropriate to the seriousness of the content. Of course, it, it's, you know, this is a very uh, sobering moment in, in modern European history. So I think the sort of the audio landscape, if you like, of this series is slightly uh, slightly more somber than in the past. But it's still, I hope, very engaging and and easy to listen
5: to you've been looking at this stuff for a very long time both on doomsday watch uh guessing on oh god what now and obviously in all all your other work but in putting this series together where it's it's the overview did you discover things that perhaps you hadn't realized before did did stuff leap out when you when you kind of take the uh the kind of overall helicopter view as it were
4: yeah definitely so um i won't give away too many spoilers but uh, I think in episode two, I finally understood the conundrum, which, of course, lots of people have grappled with, which is why did the Russians try this full-scale invasion with a, with a force that just wasn't big enough for the task? And there's something there uh, about a, um, like I say, not too many spoilers, but about an expectation that actually the situation had been stitched up for them by the FSB in advance. So that they weren't actually really invading, they were they were driving into the country, expecting all resistance to sort of um, melt away. And and it's interesting that because we we talk a lot about the incompetence of the Russian military, and and clearly you know it, it's been shown repeatedly in the last 14 months. But I don't think it's good enough just to say, well, they don't know what they're doing you know, it's all a shit show. There has to be more to it than that. And trying to understand what's going on. This isn't about, of course, defending Russia, but trying to understand what's going on, understanding why this thing played out the way it did. I I felt that we we, we sort of made a bit of progress there.
5: Just to wrap up, China's uh, Xi Jinping just called President Zelensky for the first time since the Russian invasion. Uh, Zelensky said the call was long and meaningful, but it came on the heels of Beijing's ambassador to France, suggesting that Former Soviet countries like Ukraine don't have actual status in international law. I, mean, I don't know whether this is just a kind of a, a Chinese clangor, whether where, where it's someone spoke out of turn, or whether it's something real. What, what are people saying about the potential role of China in in, in ending this? What are they saying in Kyiv?
4: Well, it, it came up today in a meeting with a, with a very uh, senior Ukrainian politician, and that and you know obviously they they are very happy that Xi Jinping uh, sort of finally made contact. It's pretty extraordinary. It's been over a year and, you know, there's been no contact. So clearly that's a good thing. But but the, the Ukrainians are very clear that if China thinks that its peace plan starts with ceasefire. The ceasefire is what Russia wants because the ceasefire gives Russia then the frozen conflict with, with a huge proportion of Ukraine occupied by Russia, millions of Ukrainians living under Russian occupation. And of course, frozen conflicts are the Russian methodology. They've done it in Georgia. They've done it in, in other parts of, of the, the former Soviet Union. So the, this is where Obviously, I, I wasn't um, uh, listening into the call with Xi Jinping and Zelensky, so I, I can't judge. But if Xi Jinping was sort of saying, we're here to help, we think there should be a ceasefire, and then we, then we can help negotiate the peace, that is not an option. That, that, of course, there might be a ceasefire at some future point, but you can't have a ceasefire uh, on the basis that Russia has invaded significant chunks of this country.
5: Arthur Snell in Kiev, thank you for talking to us. Doomsday Watch Series 4 is available right now. Thanks a lot. Great talking to you and and looking forward to seeing you all back
4: in the UK uh, before too long.
5: Back to everybody in the studio.
0: Now, if you ever feel yourself succumbing to imposter syndrome, remember that until last week, Dominic Raab was doing three jobs and he was shit at them all. His departure left vacancies for Justice Secretary, Lord Chancellor and Deputy Prime Minister. I didn't see any of them advertised on LinkedIn, so it's jobs for the boys again. Two white ones in their mid-40s in this case. Alex Chalk is in as Lord Chancellor and Justice Secretary, and Oliver Dowden, former Culture Secretary and Tory Chair, is the new Deputy Prime Minister. Naomi, with Sunak being accused of being soft on criminals, could having a fresh slate with Chalk at the MOJ help him out?
1: Uh, there's, There's no such thing as a fresh slate after 13 years in government.
0: There are a new government, Naomi. Every time, (laughs) so don't don't you'll you'll spoil the illusion. They've reinvented themselves. (laughs) All,
1: All parts of the justice system are in crisis, whether it's policing, prisons, the courts, and that is almost exclusively because of Tory mismanagement, Tory underfunding, and that's not going to change before the next election. So Labour will have just you know. Quite rightly, keep banging that drum, um, and I, I just don't see how chalk can, uh, you know, to turn that around for soon. Like that's not where people's uh, attentions will be. It will be the fact that when they're burgled or when their grandma is burgled, the police don't come out and investigate. It will be that you know when they are hoping to, to as victims, to have a, a trial, go to court. It's it's taking years um to do so so no i i, I don't think this can help you out with that one at all
0: do you think he'll try to make it help him out though in this way of that it is just a government by optics as we've discussed before he'll go look at this new fresh face who he was a lawyer and he's look he looks pretty clean cut surely he'll do a good job
1: mm, i mean he can try but it's not going to work what do
0: we know about chalk's character and have you ever had any run-ins with him have you ever met the guy
1: i haven't. Um... He's coming from the defence procurement brief um, which isn't stellar uh, considering the amount that the MOD wasted um, at least 13 billion since 2010. Um, We know that he was a a Remainer um, and if you are the MP for Cheltenham you don't have a hell of a lot of choice but to be pro-European. He was only given a government job in 2021 um, but in that period since he's had a number of justice related briefs probably not not surprisingly because he was a barrister and um, he did work quite closely with Rob therefore um and I very much hope didn't get any management tips from him um but you know he's he's, he's pretty par for the course privately educated he's a wikimist, Oxford graduate former lawyer has anyone else ever had any run-ins with Alex Chalk?
3: I literally had to Google to see what he looked like. <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's one of those people that the name just sounds like it could be just random. It could have been made up by random Tory yeah. MP name generator. And I looked at him, and he seems exactly the same as all of the ones yeah, I've yeah. seen
2: before. He he is like AI Justice Minister, isn't he? Really? Yeah. We it crossed is. paths after the 2015 election because he was one of the dozen or so Tories embroiled in the allegations around overspending right. in marginal seats.
1: Okay. He was, he was, and like it is a bus. very marginal seat. Um, it will be in the Lib Dems' top handful of of target seats beyond their held seats, um, mm-hmm. and and looking very, very, very close between the Conservatives and the Lib Dems uh, this time round.
0: Naomi, when you said he was a mist there, I when I was initially hearing, I thought you were saying wicker. And I thought that would actually make him much more interesting if he was massively invested in witchcraft and paganism of some kind. But uh, maybe, maybe that's what we'll get next time. The jobs do seem to be turning
2: around fairly often. Seth, what exactly is the Lord Chancellor supposed to do? Um, I mean, a version of it that job has actually gone back to 1066. So it's been around for a thousand <laughs> years, but it does modify. These days, it's to do with the administration of courts, the prison system, legal aid, probation services. They appoint judges. It's a very broad-ranging set of powers. And the key figure, actually, in defining it in the modern age, about 15, 20 years ago, was Charles Clark when he was Home Secretary. Because Charles Clark uh, found that the Home Office was full of a rag bag of all sorts of powers, many of which he didn't want to be within a million miles of. So he said, well, I don't like sentencing because it's always unpopular. There's always some criminal who's being released soon. uh, So the Justice Secretary can do that. Uh, I don't like prisons because there's always some riot or some escape or something. I'm always to blame for that. So it ended up making both the Secretary of State for Justice and the Lord Chancellor, which are technically separate jobs, but they're usually held by the same person. Um, It's an incredibly powerful position, arguably more powerful than the prime minister in many ways. And so, yes, they're responsible for the running of this huge justice department as well. There are some ragbag weird powers around uh, ecclesiastical responsibilities, things like the running of the Church of England. Um, It's incredibly broad.
0: With Alex Chalk, though, I mean, as Matt mentioned, he's kind of, for for most people, he's not exactly a figure that is uh, someone that, you well, is even front and centre of mind. Do you think he will actually wield any of that power particularly, or is he basically, he is kind of, he's there because Sunak would quite like someone who he can kind of just not worry about to be there.
2: I think more in the latter, as in he's regarded as being a safe pair of hands. Of course, when people are brought in as a safe pair of hands in politics, there is a bit of a... And when you've only
0: got about six pairs of hands left to go into roles, (laughs) it's kind of, you know, how safe can they be? Uh, Deputy PM as well, the role was vacant for six years recently. Why is it back in
2: vogue? I mean, it's a much vaguer set of powers and the, the history of the office, which Theoretically it goes back to about World War II when Clement Attlee was Winston Churchill's deputy. But very often it's not strictly defined. Um, you know, and somebody can be a de facto deputy and that sort of way. Generally, there are two types of deputy prime minister There are those who are given the job or the title as a consolation prize because they're a potential rival to the Prime Minister and it's a way of keeping them uh, silent. Michael Heseltine was a classic example of that. He was regarded by Major as a major threat when he became Prime Minister, and he said by the end he was my biggest ally and supporter. But I kept him sweet. I Made him deputy prime minister. Um, There was a whole thing that Lord Butler, the cabinet secretary at the time, said that uh, Heseltine was really interested in the size of his office, and he was sort of looking (laughs) at Butler's own office, saying, "I like the look of this." And eventually, they found this massive lobby in the middle of the cabinet office complex with a huge desk on it and a huge dais, sort of platform he was sat on. That made Heseltine happy. Um, The second type of deputy prime minister are the ones who are really there as fixers and uh, sort of troubleshooters, uh, power brokers. that sort of thing. And I think um, Dowton is very much more in that mould. Uh, he is, by background, a PR man, um, somebody who's into marketing, somebody who's into the public face of this. So I think that's how Sunak is getting a key alloy of his into his job. I don't think, given his charisma, he's seen as a potential rival to Lucy no. Sunak.
0: I mean, is it sort of the... Uh as you say, it's kind of, it feels like it's all somewhat ceremonially. I mean, traditionally now it would feel to me like if there's anyone who's kind of deputy prime minister, really, the the right-hand person generally is
2: chancellor, it would appear. Yeah, so are these we, kind of all... But if we fast forward to in two years' time, if you've lost your seat and you're nobody and there is nothing more ex than an ex-politician, it's a great thing to say you used to be yeah. deputy prime minister of the United Kingdom. Yeah, I suppose you'll get a lot more money at dinner parties. Exactly. Speaking, speaking circuit, all that stuff. <laughs> uh.
0: Matt, Dowden is a more familiar figure here. As Culture Secretary, he warned of a painful, woke psychodrama
3: sweeping the West. Is this more a uh, a more hardline ap- appointment than it seems? I think possibly. I think he seems someone who's quite happy to go whichever the way the wind blows on that sort of thing. Um, I was reminded that he did a big speech at the Heritage Foundation, which is where Liz Truss spoke recently, <laughs> and I... I remember that because I did a parody video of it, and I think the first line was, hello, I'm Oliver Dowden, no, me neither. And I think that probably sums him up for me, is that he's someone who's sort of always been around the side and around the back. He's been an advisor uh, on Prime Minister's questions and things, and so he knows the ins and outs of Parliament, but seems quite happy to do the cultural thing, if that's what they want. And I found it quite disappointing, because I think when I had first became aware of him, he seemed a reasonably reasonable member of the uh, Tory party as these things go and then he became very uh, obsessed with the culture war stuff and in a way that you just say well you're just doing this because you feel like this is the thing you're meant to do now there yeah. wasn't much um, heart in it but it still has an impact yeah,
0: I feel like it harks back to the sort of schoolboy thing we were speaking about earlier that there are they there are the kind of bully characters but they're they are also the sort of quite sycophantic like don't bully me let me be a part of your club characters, which
3: is maybe mildly more pathetic in a strange way. I also think his current job before this was the the Chancellor of the Duchy of Lancaster, which I had again I had to Google to work out what that actually means It's the most extraordinary. Sure. But it has a lot of different responsibilities. It seems to be mostly about the Cabinet Office and delivering government priorities and lots of buzzwords involved, over, lots of oversight and oversight of this, oversight of this. But also I, I then realised that it has been held by seven people since 2016 and five in the last two years so it's one of these jobs that clearly just goes to anybody that they feel like oh I don't know who what's get oh, i'll give, give, give him the yeah. Duchy of Lancaster he'll yeah, deal with I feel with like that. Gove was it for a little
0: while yeah like, Gove, Gove was, was for a couple of years
3: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Gove has done it all I love that the cartoon that I regularly use of let me do it David the yeah. fly is just the, the best Gove has nearly finished his uh, loyalty card. He has. He's nearly got enough stamps now yeah. that he'll get a free. Well, his stamps meant that he got that free smoking booth on That's top true. of the roof, which I mean,
0: was,
2: uh, I think, is quite cool. Matt Matt says that uh, he seems sort of nice, quite nice and reasonable to begin with. I, I am reminded of uh, Ringo Starr's impression of uh, Jeffrey Archer the first time he met him in the sixties, uh, when uh, the Beatles were being shown around by Jeffrey Archer. and He said, um, "He strikes me as a nice enough fellow, but he's the kind of bloke who would bottle your piss and sell it." <laughs> <laughs> Naomi, Sunak, Dowden and Robert Jenrick
0: were dubbed the Free musketeers after writing a joint article in The Times in 2019, saying that only Boris Johnson can save us. Ugh. Jenrick is currently Minister for Immigration. Do we think Sunak secretly pines for him to take over the Home Office entirely?
1: Yeah, well, he, he's probably happy enough to keep Braverman in place to keep the rabid xenophobes in his party suite so she's pretty useful to him in that way uh, even if she remains completely unfit for office and I don't half wonder if Jenrick knows that uh, given his own absolutely revolting comments uh, today uh, we're recording on Wednesday about those coming in small boats that their values and lifestyles threaten the social cohesion of Britain that is straight out of uh, a Braverman Patel playbook um, and is as xenophobic as anything they've said. I mean, what, what values and lifestyles, the values of being brave enough to take the most dangerous of crossings out of desperation, your lifestyle being so threatened. That, that you make that crossing. So, you know, absolutely grotesque. And perhaps that's his pitch to Sunak. Don't worry, look, I can help you with the rabid flank of the party just as, as well as she can. But let's not make any excuses for Sunak. Um, he may privately uh, disagree with some of the stuff that, that Braverman says and doesn't hold quite as disgusting a view of uh those seeking asylum as, as she does but people define themselves by their actions I mean he installed Bravo and he's kept her there um he's promoting um uh Jenrick and presumably very happy with the words that came out of Jenric's mouth today um so you know he's he's just as bad as them he's supported that Rwanda plan uh, and the the disgraceful uh, illegal migration bill that is being voted on as we speak I think within the next couple of minutes they'll, they'll move to votes.
0: Yeah as we record on Wednesday what is what's happening there what's the the feeling around that I know yeah. it's obviously going to be dated but what is yeah. what is more widely happening there does it seem like Sunak has won more people over to his side I think we've expected there to be a real clash around this and that now doesn't really seem to be the case it's quietly been sorted out yeah
1: indeed so uh, as we start to record it looks like uh tim uh loughton is not going to be pushing um the amendment on unaccompanied children being held in detention to a vote um it sounds from the speeches that ian duncan smith is still pushing his amendment though on protecting those from modern slavery. Um, But it is, of course, worth remembering that that real battle will come in the House of Lords. Um, We we, we don't expect with the large government majority for anything other than um, a a pretty easy sale through the Commons. Um, Some on the the right of the Conservatives fear that their amendment um, around disregarding Rule 39, these orders by the European Court of Human Rights, um, will be stripped out by peers um, we've seen ECHR themselves and Europe, um, corporately from Brussels and various different uh, member state heads condemning the UK over that. You know, you don't get to cherry pick parts of the ECHR. Um, and Tory peer Nikki Morgan, so, you know, much more on the sort of wetter side of the Conservative Party, um, being reported in Politico this morning, um, saying that the Lords are going to be watching very closely what happens in the Commons. The more amendments and arguments there are, the more likely we are to pick them up. Um, So that was her warning shot to MPs, you know, do this, do this, and then we'll tackle it in the Lords and and take the government on over this. So crucially, if the Lords do take out that Rule 39 amendment, um, it would put Sunak uh, really on the spot when that bill comes back again to the Commons, um, and rebels would try again to to get their amendments put back in, so um, he's he's probably got quite a, a tough ride, as he has done with various other pieces of legislation um, where where the Lords have flexed their muscle. Um, and uh, and I'm no fan of an unelected chamber, but thank God for them at the moment.
0: I was going to say, you're you not sounding like the, the unicameralist that I know. I'm not you know a unicameralist. It was uh, a
1: provocation. But you know what? Ian <laughs> and I need to have a head-to-head show on this. because he's so, And I keep hearing him because now he's been promoting his brilliant book all over the place, digging in more and more on this. And he's just wrong. And I'd love yeah. to have a, a really mm-hmm. good ding-dong with mm-hmm. him about it on a show.
0: We've reached the end of the show, so what are the stories that have gone under the radar this week? Naomi, what's yours?
1: Andrew Bridgen got expelled from the Conservative Party. (laughs) (laughs) Um, This actually slipped out on the 12th of April, but nobody picked it up. I didn't even clock it until today. And remember, this is because he compared COVID vaccines to the Holocaust. Um, uh, So it now remains to be seen whether the, the good burgers of northwest leicestershire send him on his merry way if he does try and stand as an independent or you know presumably he'll set up an andrew bridgen brexit properly now party or something but yeah that that, that went under the radar and is worthy of uh raising our glasses
0: thank you very much for uh specifying northwest leicestershire for him as well because someone who lived in leicester for quite a few years when he gets thrown into Leicester it really frustrates me (laughs) no 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 he's nothing to do he's further out he's not Leicester so uh, (laughs) yeah good
2: riddance to him uh, completely there Seth what's yours? Uh, well, the story which was widely noticed last week was around Dominic Raab talking about activist civil servants. But I want to talk about a detail of that which was widely missed out. Uh, the interviewer, Chris Mason, did actually take him up on that and said, you know, how can you justify that? Raab's exact words were, oh, I was told that by one cabinet secretary and by one director of propriety and ethics at the cabinet office. That's so a very... was by civil servants? By two very senior civil servants who couldn't be more senior and a very short list of office holders who overlap with Raab's own time in office not only is he putting them right in it but that's a deeply troubling set of things for senior civil servants be saying it suggests the civil service is very much at war with a sort of minority at the top who are in accord with the current government's views um, seeing themselves as being at odds with the rest of the civil service Matt, what's yours? Well this is a story I saw
3: about a woman who had to crowdfund um, her dentures because she just couldn't get any NHS funding for it. And she was someone who had suffered from very, very serious gum disease for many years. Her teeth had fallen out, or she'd had to literally pull them out herself. And then after many years of this, she set up a crowdfunder and ended up raising two and a half thousand pounds and with through friends and family and the church, I think, and got some dentures for it. And it just made me think, well, this is absolutely about the problems in the NHS. This is I think dentistry is something that never really gets talked about because You know, lots of people don't really think about it and unless you're suffering from bad teeth you don't really worry about it but apparently um, BBC said that 9 in 10 NHS dental practices across the UK are not accepting new adult patients Um, a third of the UK's councils have no dentists taking adult patients and 8 out of 10 NHS practices are not even taking on children so basically NHS dentistry is almost a thing of the past Mm. And, and that has happened with very little... Well, it's not like anyone's asked for that. It's just sort of happened. And the government is aware of it and have, have said that they're trying to do something. They said they've pledged yeah. 50 million pounds to help with backlogs from COVID, but that feels like a very small amount of money for such a big problem.
0: Yeah, my dentist I find is, and it's an NHS dentist for checkups, but then getting anything done is then done at a private rate. Yeah, And so it's sort of, because of the bands with the NHS, that makes it exponentially more expensive. And because I'm fortunate to be in a position that I'm like, it's the nearest to me and, you know, I just I tap the card and don't think loads about it mm. but that's really you know that the amount of money difference that is yeah. is not insignificant if you are someone who is
3: particularly struggling well I personally yeah have, have used a private NH- uh, a private dentist for years now and i just i don't even think of the nhs yeah. being something that you can yeah. get dentistry on which is yeah. which is crazy yeah. uh, my under the radar is unfortunately also a, a health
0: related one but that uh so we had the most sick days on record last year in 2022 but a a point of that being that the mental health had been the fourth highest which has been switched out for respiratory illnesses but it's still the fifth highest and i think just generally that we are a nation that is that unwell is quite concerning for one but then also that mental health point is that i think there's you know there's a lot of discussion around the fact that you shouldn't feel ashamed to take a day sick for your mental health but i actually don't think i know many people who in practice would feel that comfortable doing that particularly and so i think that's an important thing to note that it's it's not an insignificant percentage of 187 million sick days and a lot you know a, a not insignificant percentage of that is around mental health and I think so that should be something that is is discussed but also it should be considered the fact that well if that's the percentage of people who are declaring that to be the case then how many people are either suffering through it or are bullshitting and saying they've got a little bit of a cold when they're not feeling totally up for it so I think that is a yeah it felt to me as
3: quite a just a sad a sad thing to to spot there so I think the problem often with mental health um in this country is there's a real sense of there's lots of campaigns of mental health awareness. We have to be aware of mental health and talk about your mental health and talk about it. And then as soon as you actually do talk about it and actually want to do anything about it, you have to go on a two-year waiting list. There's, yeah. there's very, It's very, very similar to dentistry. There's huge demand and almost no supply. Yeah. And so most people, if they can afford it, go private. And if you can't afford it, you just don't get it. Listeners, stay tuned
0: for the extra bit after Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop and the traditional thank you to our patient army of generous supporters. You too could join them and get the podcast early and without ads, plus lots more. Also, don't forget Oh God What Now, live at Leicester Square Theatre on Wednesday the 24th of May. Tickets are out now and Patreon people get a discount. Search Oh God What Now Patreon to find out how to get yours. And on that note, here are some thank yous to our Patreon backers.
2: Thanks so much for supporting us and hello to Vincent, Tom Maples and Heather.
1: And a massive thank you from me to Daisy Yates, Paddy R, and Annabeth Lux.
0: And finally, all the best from me to John Houston, Ben Latham, and Nikos Titi. Welcome to the extra bit, exclusively for Patreon backers. North East Lincolnshire Council has slapped a 100 pound fine on metal detectorists using Cleeforps Beach for treasure hunting after they claimed that it could disturb a wildlife area nearby. The Observer reported that the Council introduced a public space protection order on the 1st of April, preventing various activities on the beach and coastline because it is a site of special scientific interest, part of the Humber Estuary. But the article also noted the Council issued a statement to the Observer justifying its decision, but did not explain what harm detectorists might do on the sea flats when the tide was out. did get me thinking that sand is quite famously malleable. Really? So damaging it with a tide coming in and out every day seems quite bizarre to me there. But Seth, is there there a serious point here that councils have too much to do, but not the resources or time or expertise to do those things properly?
2: Yeah, I mean, there's something in that. Um, Obviously, this is completely bonkers. Uh, Just let's be clear on that. But whereas you don't want to be in a world where any kind of organisation has power without responsibility, councils are in the worst possible world in that they have responsibility without any power. And that's the result of decades um, of governments, uh, of all three parties, it has to be said, stripping out bit by bit the things that they do, um, stripping out their budgets in particular. They are now responsible for the things that no one else wants. touch with a barge pole. So that is why they are in charge of adult social care, of children's services. They're in charge of things that could go really wrong, really badly, that no one wants to be caught dead actually uh, handling. And so as a result... There is a tendency very often to uh, you know, sort of blame councils. Well, they're not in a position they particularly want to be in. And you tend not to get the brightest and the best going for councils these days. Yeah. It tends to very much attract, you know, the jobs worth the pen pushes. That's not how councils should be. Um, and particularly with the hollowing out of their budgets... The offer to councils over the last decade by successive central governments has been essentially privatize or go bust. Yeah. You either run a successful set of hotels on the side as a business venture and are using that to make up for the lack of a grant and the lack of tax raising powers or else you just declare bankruptcy. It feels like something that 's quite
0: wide in British public life here, and maybe it 's the sort of big society notion from David Cameron here partially to this, but that Quite a lot of integral things are seen as vocations like being mm. a councillor should not be a vocation i imagine it's not that fun and it takes up a lot of your time but you don't get paid enough to do it as a full-time job and then it that seems into how we treat doctors
2: nurses dentists i mean i think since the blair reforms there is actually more of a divide between the rank and file councillors who absolutely do this on the side for 9 10k a year and the cabinet portfolio holders who do this as a proper full-time job okay. in many cases
0: Naomi, if the if the council were going to crack down on something, uh, they might want to start with sewage, because Cleethorpes has already had a health warning for poor water quality in the area. Are authorities often missing the mark on these sort of things and going after things which are just a visible problem but not the the actual issue for people in communities?
1: I mean, I'm not an expert, but I'd imagine there isn't a huge amount that local authorities can do when the national government actively voted against legislation that would prohibit the water companies dumping sewage in our rivers and seas but yes uh,
0: that was a teaser for the bonus bit of this week's podcast if you'd like a little bit more oh god what now every week without ads and a day early then do yourself a favor and sign up to back us on patreon for as little as three pounds a month you'll also get our exclusive weekly minicast oh god what else every monday morning and some fabulous merchandise thank you for listening and see you next week